Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. It's good to be here with you all again. I'm uh, excited to share one more lesson with you all about the edge of evangelism, lessons we can learn from outstanding examples of people who have served the Lord in amazing ways in missions, in personal soul winning, and today we're going to consider a church outreach uh, that is a great example, several of them actually. And um, it's been very encouraging. I hope it's been encouraging to you. It's been challenging to me. Uh, good reminders of things that I've heard before but need to review. And, and I trust for all of us to give us something that we can see that maybe right now feels kind of far away. When we think about uh, last week's examples of Walter Wilson and soul winning, uh, the amazing stories he told. And I, th- I think it was Anita Cyphers who knew him and uh, said, uh, shared some of her personal stories of his witnessing and talking and, and preaching and um, interesting to see how God used that man. Sometimes we feel those things are so distant that we can't, uh, can't hold a candle to it. Uh, that's not the point of a good example. The point of a good example is to encourage us that God can do that. Uh, if he can do that in someone else, we need to earnestly ask for those things in our own lives that God would use us uh, to see many people saved, to see missions accomplished, and to see church growth and church outreach go forward in a powerful way. So if you don't, need, if you don't have a handout, could you raise your hand and we'll, maybe Johnny's got a couple more. Okay, back there, Charles, you need one? Oh, he's got one, great, okay. I thought I saw a hand. All right, great. Thank you, gentlemen, for helping out with that. Appreciate that. This morning I want to ask a question. Uh, what do churches that promulgate the gospel look like? What do churches that promulgate the gospel look like? And I don't know what comes to mind when you think of a church that is sending out the word of the Lord in a powerful way so that they make an impact in their area and beyond. I don't know what images come to your mind or what stories come to your mind. We're going to share a few of them. Sometimes I think of the idea of revival in that context of God stirring up a church, stirring up a community. And then the things that happen after that, there are wonderful stories of revival from our country and all around the world that should be encouraging to us as we wait on the Lord and hopeful to us as we wait on the Lord. One of the books that I've read regarding this is called Continuous Revival by a man named Norman Grubb, who was a contemporary of C.T. Studd and spent some time in East Africa. He writes in his book, Continuous Revival, it is to the constant confession of Christ that I am called. That is my duty. That is my privilege. That is the way both to get blessing and to transmit it. He'd gone to East Africa and observed what God was doing in the churches there. And he summed it up this way. He said, revival begins by one person seeing from God what it is to walk in the light. But to walk with Jesus like this involves also walking in the light with one another, relating horizontally as well as vertically. And that means there is at least one other person with whom to walk in open fellowship. That is something we should think of as normal, that we're growing together, that we're serving the Lord together. Uh, And yes, one other person is required. What a joy when it's more than that. But we should be having that open kind of fellowship and iron sharpening iron relationship of all of us together walking in the light. America's Second Great Awakening at the end of the 18th century saw some marvelous changes in this country and uh, 
uh, Justo Gonzalez writes, toward the end of the 18th century, a second great awakening began in New England. At first, it did not include great emotional outbursts, but was marked rather by a sudden earnestness in Christian devotion and living. Attendance at worship increased markedly, and many spoke of having had an experience of conversion. That first phase of the awakening resulted in the founding of several societies whose purpose was to make the gospel known. And as we think about our country and the kind of things we hope to see now, the kind of things that we're burdened to see in our country, I think what we're reading about in the Second Great Awakening are the kind of things that we're asking God to do in our land today. To see people have a sense of devotion, have a sense of reverence toward God, to see many people converted, to see the churches full again, and to see the land return to the Lord, to see people returning to the Lord in the right way. So I want to take a, a biblical example first. Uh, I jumped the gun, sorry about that. We're going to open our Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. The Bible gives us a wonderful example of a church that had a profound outreach. And I don't want to share too much right away. I'm going to walk through this. The church of Thessalonica was born from the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. And on this second missionary journey, as they're going through Asia Minor, and they have that incredible experience of being told no twice by the Holy Spirit in regards to ministering in Asia and then ministering in Bithynia, and the Spirit does not allow them to do that. Then they have the Macedonian call, and the Apostle Paul and his companions travel into Europe, bring the gospel to Philippi. You know about the Philippian jailer and that incredible scene there. In Acts 17, they've now gone down to um, the area of Thessalonica. It says in verse 1, they came to Thessalonica, where it was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went into them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed, distorted with Paul and Silas, of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. They troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, when they take a security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. And this is the birth of the church in Thessalonica. And uh, we're going to stop for a moment and pray, and then we'll look into the rest of this. Father in heaven, as we consider these examples, I pray, Lord, that we would see in them what you would have us to be. Lord, I pray that we would see in them the things that resonate with your heart, that correspond to your truth, that they lived your truth, that they lived your life, and that we would do the same thing. Lord, thank you for 
giving us human examples. Thank you for filling them with your fullness so that they're worth imitating, worth following, worth learning from. Lord, may we be able to have the same testimony that we walk with you, that you use us, that others can be encouraged because of what you're doing here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This church in Thessalonica was born in great adversity, as we just read, and the difficulty of having attacks happen early on. It doesn't seem to have uh, hurt them in, in the way that we would expect it to happen. I think when Brother Haitham Nizar Nuri went to Iraq during the Second Iraq War, was preaching in Mosul, saw a group of about 30 people coalesce in his church planning efforts, and then that grew to 60, I think. It was growing rather quickly in just a few months. And then get warned by terrorists to take down the church sign and the cross from the building he was in. He refused to do that, and they, uh, one Sunday as he was driving to church with his mother, came up beside him and shot him, shot his vehicle. His mother was injured, but he was badly injured and dying. And uh, gratefully, the Lord spared his life, and he was able to uh, stabilize, return to Lebanon, where he preaches from a wheelchair, and is seeing more and more people saved than ever. (laughs) Uh, In fact, the people that were there in Mosul, that he hoped to reach there, were later displaced by ISIS attacks, and many of them moved to Beirut, where they were within earshot of his church and came and got saved and discipled, baptized, and added to the church. These attacks that happened, people think, will stop the church. But as an anti-fragile thing, the church grows when it suffers attacks. The church grows when it goes through difficulty. I already told you about Brother Raymond in Lebanon, who when his church was attacked said, if I had known the blessings that would come from persecution, I would have asked for them earlier. God does wonderful things in the midst of adversity, and this church here is no no exception to that. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll spend more time here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's a lot to say from this chapter and from this book. Many encouraging things about how uh, God works in a, in a new church, in a church that's just been started and started under difficult circumstances. It's not how we try to church plant when we think about planting a church. We try to set it up so everything's just right. Um, this was set up so everything's just wrong. Uh, but, but God's at work. God's doing a marvelous work here. In verse number 6 of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says of these believers, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul says, You had a hard time and you had joy. Isn't it wonderful how those two things are juxtaposed? Can you think through your life of those times of affliction that have brought you joy? remember in my illness after serving in the Middle East, the Lord uh, taught me that just because something is hard doesn't mean it's bad. And I got to tell you, that's a, that's a joy when you learn that. And I know many of you have learned that far better than I have. We can receive the word of the Lord in much affliction and also receive joy at the same time. How does that happen? Well, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The peace of the Lord that he gives us isn't like what the world gives. It's durative. It lasts. It keeps us through difficulties. We can sleep well because we know that our case before the Lord is right. 
that our sins are forgiven, that we have eternal life. And as adversity comes, we know that we've chosen the best thing. I think of the example of the little maid who served in Haman. In, in, uh, in Naaman. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> served in his house, and here she is on her worst day, taken captive, serving as a slave. Her master's dying of leprosy, and she's concerned for him. As we think about those around us, we ought to have that same kind of mind. Adversity and joy in the Holy Ghost. Perhaps some that are hurting us, some that are against us, some that are fighting against God and his truth. They are the very people upon whom we should have pity, not giving room for the lies or the sins, but certainly pity because on our worst day we're heaven bound. And on their best day, their destiny is hell. We ought to be people who have that kind of confidence. This church was born in adversity, but it was brought up by earnest missionaries Seems I have an errant slide thing there, so forgive that, please. The church was brought up by, by earnest missionaries. Turn over to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. As we survey what was going on there, the Apostle Paul tells what happened from his perspective in verse 7. He says, We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because you were dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. I think about this church and I think about the fact that this is a first generation missionary church. What is it that Paul is aiming towards as he talks to these believers? Now we read in Acts chapter 17 that there was a synagogue there. So there was some Bible instruction available in that town and others have talked about the impact of that and perhaps the profound impact of that so that the believers who came to faith in Christ, had a lot of knowledge of the scriptures, and that, that may be. Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that you turn to God from idols. That's a big shift. This is not a church that had a lot of, uh, I would say, a lot of very uh, deeply entrenched Bible scholars. This is a church that made a huge shift to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And he's telling them, here was our example, and here's what you should be. I think sometimes when we think about church planting, we try to uh, diminish the expectation to spare us and to spare the people to whom we're serving. But it doesn't help anybody to lower the expectation, as we're lowering faith along the way often. Expecting God to do less through us or in us or by us and then also then expecting God to do less in these other people to whom we're serving, whom we're serving. We don't need to have a less expectation. We should have a greater expectation. We should ask God for what Paul's doing right here. Lord, let us be like this. Let us behave ourselves holily, unblameably. Be gentle among those that we're serving. Giving of ourselves, knowing that you're going to do a great work. That they'll see that example and live like that. 
That's what happens in Thessalonica. The Apostle Paul is moved by the Holy Spirit directly to Macedonia. He goes into the first place, he gets arrested. He goes into the second place, he gets kicked out of town. He keeps doing this. And these Thessalonican believers are seeing this. That's their expectation of what's supposed to happen. And so they're seeing a great example and then they themselves become a great example as they broadcast the gospel. This is my favorite part of this passage. Uh, I love this 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and the last part of this chapter because Paul says, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, if you can't place Macedonia and Achaia exactly in your mind, Macedonia would be the northern area of Greece. Achaia would be the southern area of Greece. So when you think of Macedonia, we think of Berea, Philippi, Thessalonica. We think of those churches and, and those books that correspond to them. When you think of southern uh, Greece, we think of Athens and Corinth and those kinds of places. That's Achaia. Paul says, you were examples to everybody in Macedonia. What a, what a great thing to say, isn't it? Wouldn't you love for someone to be able to say, you were an example to everybody in Indianapolis? That would be great. And then he says, but not just there in, in, in Macedonia, but also in Achaia, in this surrounding area. In the Midwest, we could say, your testimony went further. You broadcasted the gospel. And then this is a phrase that I think is just beautiful. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. The, you're broadcasting out. You're promulgating this gospel. It's, it's going out like sound waves from you all over. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. What a wonderful thing to hear from the church planter. He goes in, he preaches, he teaches, he ministers, and then he looks back at what happened after he's uh, run out of town on a rail, as they say. He looks back and says, well, I could go back and maybe get arrested again, but I don't need to. I need not speak anything. You're saying it correctly. You're saying it loudly. You're saying it broadly. God's using your testimony all over. Think about a church like that. Think about a church that has that kind of an impact so that the Apostle Paul, the missionary planter of this church, would say, when I think about the places I need to go, I don't think about Thessalonica. I don't think about that because you're doing it. You're doing it. You're sounding out the word of the Lord all over. Your testimony is going in Macedonia. It's going in Achaia. It's going everywhere so that we need not to speak anything. What a delight to the Apostle Paul that must have been, to have people join him as co-laborers. I usually tell churches that if they want to encourage missionaries, many churches do, of course, they uh, make special gifts for them, uh, they do special things to make their, their, their life easier, all of that's greatly appreciated and is often a help in a, in a profound way. But if you really want to encourage a missionary, have that same heart. Have something that resonates between you and them, that you think the same way, that you're burning with the same fire, you have the same passion, you have the same loves, you have the same dedication, and in your sphere, you're sounding out the word of the Lord everywhere. You're filling up this area with the gospel. That encourages a missionary a lot. 
a lot. To come in and to see that this is not foreign. What I'm sharing is going to resonate with these people because they're doing it right here. They're doing it in their own lives. The Apostle Paul must have felt greatly encouraged. He says here in verse 9, they themselves, that is the people that hear all this, the people that see your testimony, they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. This part is, is important and there is an important relationship between a church that has the right kind of outreach and they have this right kind of view or relation to Christ's return, to Christ's return. Now, the book of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians deals with the second coming. Paul talks to them about that. I don't want to go into that discussion, but I do want to say that the Apostle Paul was working as a man who anticipated his master coming back. And this church here has that same vision. They're waiting for his son, God's son, to return. They're looking for that. And they behave as if that's true because it is. The fact that Christ is returning should radically alter our behavior. The fact that he's coming and his rewards are with him should profoundly change the way that we think about what we do, how we behave, and the things that we engage in. We are looking for a Lord, a King, who is coming back. We don't know when. It's important how we handle this idea. The Apostle Paul lived like that. He talks to the church in Thessalonica about that because this is a very important fact, factor in how a church does outreach. Turn over to Luke chapter 12, please. Luke chapter 12. Jesus teaches about the need to be ready for his return. And there's a particular part of this that I want to point out here. But I'll read the, the majority of this passage starting in verse 40 of Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells his disciples, those around, Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth, I say unto you, he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, prepared not himself, neither did according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. There's a lot to say on this. I wanted to start by simply focusing on the fact that Christ views his return as as instructive of how we should behave until he comes back. Christ views his return as very instructive of how we should behave until he comes back. And notice what he says that his servants are to be doing. 
What is it that he made his servant, verse 42, a steward? What did he, why did he make him a steward? What was the reason for that? Can someone talk back to me here? What, why did this master that Jesus is talking about, of course in reference to himself, why does he make his steward uh, the possessor, temporary possessor of all of these things? His household, his, his riches. Why, why does he do that? Say it again. That he'd be faithful? That's correct. Faithful doing what? Work of the ministry? What's it say in the text? What does he, verse 42, what does the master want the steward to do? He wants him to rule over a household to do what? To manage. Uh, it's the next phrase. Okay, perfect. He gives them, the steward, the servant, all the access to his wealth, to his belongings, so that that steward uses it for somebody else. He gives him the riches, the grace, the ability, the resources, not to enrich himself, but to enrich other people. And so the good thing is, verse 43, when the servant is doing that, and the master comes back. That's a great thing. The servant gets to meet the Lord with victory on his hands instead of defeat. May our Lord return in the same way, finding us victorious, doing what we're supposed to be doing. He's given us great grace, and that's truly enriched us. He's made us his steward. We're part of his household. We don't deserve any of that. It's marvelous. But he's done that so that we give it to others. That's why he's done it. And if he's going to come back and find us with victory on our hands, it's going to be that we're taking of the things that he's given us and we're giving it to other people. That's what he wants us to be doing. But what happens when that servant says, verse 45, my Lord delays his coming. You know, we woke up today. It's now... What time is it? 9.35? The Lord hasn't come back yet. Does that mean I get to go do something bad? Can I confess my sin later? He's not back yet. When we indulge ourselves, when we take advantage of the opportunities to please ourselves, it's not pretty. Jesus says that he, when the servant starts to say, my Lord delays his coming, he's not back yet. What does he begin to do? Instead of feeding the other servants, instead of giving them what they need to do their job, he's making their job harder by beating them. This is tough. Jesus does not present a really nice option and a sort of less option. I think that's how we think of it, right? We think of these, these people... Who are, who are gung-ho, these church like Thessalonica. They're serving the Lord. They're doing this amazing thing. They're out there. They're the example. Look at that. We think of that, and then we think of a somewhat lesser example, and a somewhat le we kind of slide down slowly, and we find some comfortable place to put ourselves. Jesus gives us a stark contrast. A stark contrast. He says, there's a blessed servant who is doing what I want when I come back. 
And he doesn't know when I'm coming back. But he's doing what I want. And if he's not doing what I want right now, and I haven't come back, he confesses that. And he goes out and he starts doing what I want again. <laughs> I think we can see all that in there. And in our own lives. But the wicked servant, the, the wrong side of this is somebody who says, well, the Lord hasn't come back today, so I don't, I don't, have, to, I don't have to be all keyed up, high-strung, you know, pushing gung-ho. I don't have to be like that. I don't have to live on the edge. I have all these resources. And, and what, is the, what does Jesus say that servant is doing? He's not serving the people that he's there to serve. He's rather making it harder for them. He's beating the men's servants and maidens. He's eating and drinking and drunken. The, the resources that were for the enrichment of someone else have now turned on him reflexively, and it's making him worse off. He's drunk. He's fat. He's full. He's not using what he has to help somebody else. He's consuming it. This relates to his return and how we think about that. The church that does outreach, the church that sounds forth the word of the Lord in their region and beyond is a church that's anticipating the next thing Jesus said will happen. What is the next thing Jesus is going to do? He's coming back. That's the next thing. The apostle Paul lived like that. The church of Thessalonica is encouraged to live like that and was doing it. And that's incumbent upon us to act the same way. We're here to act as if he's coming back because he is. And one day, there's going to be a servant who's either going to be found with this blessing of using the resources correctly or this blight of having gluttonized himself on it. What side of that will we be in? What will be the testimony of this church, of us as a family of believers? We need to think about his return, and we need to properly relate to that in our Christian service. Well, what are some features of the church of Thessalonica that can help us see what this church is in a summary? First, it was planted following God's special leading in Paul as he took them through Asia Minor to their unreached region. So it's a baby church in a new area. It's a church that patiently endured attack by relying on powerful truth and simple faith. Those are two things that we have ready access to. Ready access to. Powerful truth and simple faith. And then thirdly, they promulgated their testimony in their region and beyond. They broadcasted the gospel by telling what God had done for them. And isn't that a delight to do? Be able to tell people what God has done for us. Now, the Apostle Paul says of the church in Thessalonica that he didn't need to speak anything. Well, let's not do that. I gave it away again. Got to work on that timing there. Um, he said the church of Thessalonica filled up or sounded out the word of the Lord in all of Macedonia and Achaia. The Apostle Paul doesn't have to go and speak. He, they're filling it up there themselves. When I think of a place that I've been personally um, where I don't need to speak anything, 
A place where the believers are busy saturating the thoughts of the unbelievers with the gospel. I think of Myanmar. It's been an honor to be able to go there several times and to see what God's doing in that place. And it's been a joy to read about it. I want to share some of the history of the church in Myanmar that I hope will be an encouragement. Of course, you know well the names Ann Judson, Adoniram Judson, that first missionary couple sent abroad from the United States and made their way to what was called Burma at the time. And the incredible adversity they went through in their first several years. There's a very interesting little book that Brother Kopp in Myanmar gave me. It's a history of the Baptist in Burma. I think, Pastor, you might have a copy as well. Uh, and a lot of wonderful, wonderful stories in there of what God did in that land. This is from the days of Judson. Um, again, if you have the handout and you scan the QR code on the back or type in that uh, URL there at the bottom, you can access all of these notes and, and look over these if they're of interest to you. This story is from Adoniram Judson's early days, and it's about the uh, salvation of some of the Burmese people, and it says, when Ma Min Le, who had been staying by Anne's bedside, heard that Ushui Ngong had actually gone to the baptismal pond, she exclaimed, ah, he is now going to obey the command of Jesus Christ while I remain without obeying. I shall not be able to sleep tonight. I must go home and consult my husband in return. By nine o'clock, she had come back, accompanied by two women from her village. She asked to be baptized immediately. The disciples present consented without hesitation, so Judson baptized her by lantern light, the tenth Burman convert and the first woman to become a Christian. On returning to the house, she said, Now I have taken the oath of allegiance to Jesus Christ, and I have nothing to do but commit myself, my soul, and body into the hands of my Lord, assured that he will never suffer me to fall away. Within a year, the young church had grown to ten members, the king's refusal to grant tolerance to Burmans wishing to follow the new religion and the emotion aroused by the imminent departure of Mr. Judson and his sick wife seemed to be what was required to tip the scales in the decision made for Christ by Ushui Ngong and Ma Min Le. As these ten members sat with the missionaries to partake of the Lord's Supper, they commemorated the dying love of their Savior and pledged their lives to his service. Those were the early days. And Judson suffered many things. All of the believers did. Many were imprisoned. Judson was able to translate the scriptures, which is still in use today in the Burmese language. But others came from the Baptist group and went other places. Arthur and Laura Carson took the gospel to the Chin Hills in March of 1899. In the same book, it says, they penetrated farther into the hills. As they penetrated farther into the hills, their hearts sank. For the chin seemed so underprivileged that they wondered whether any gospel on earth could lift them. Before going to bed the first night, Laura wept for weariness and disappointment. How can I possibly stay here a lifetime, she tearfully asked. Arthur told her, don't talk that way. Things will look brighter in the morning. Then he added the most revealing comfort of all. Laura, remember our motto, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. With that thought, they went to bed and rose the next morning determined to give their lives for Christ to win the chin. What Arthur and Laura Carson and their Karen helper, Thrasan Wynn, 
began that spring morning, March 16, 1899, was to win for Christianity a large group of tribes on the border of India and Burma in an area of 13,000 square miles of mountains, people whom time had passed by. Now, in just the length of one lifetime, from 1899 to 1962, this same book continues on saying, the 1962 reports of the Churches of the Zomi Chin Convention show 38,376 baptized believers in the living Christ. With 556 churches, 88 ordained pastors, 68 unordained preachers, 6 women workers, 8 associations, and a mission field of Kanpetlet. There were 2,425 new baptisms during the year. I've been able to see incredible things there myself in just the past 20 years. I started going there in 2008, I believe. Brother Nan Leon Kopp has been planting churches for about 20 years. And they are filling up their part of the Chin Hills with the gospel. They've planted dozens of churches. They've trained hundreds of people to the Timothy Bible School. It's a joy to go and watch it all. It's an amazing thing to see how during civil war and unrest, difficulty of getting funds over, difficulty of getting anything up to this place, when you want to think of some places inaccessible, uh, you can think of the Chin Hills and Tadim. It is hard to get to. The road that goes up, and now it's been improved, but it often washed away, uh, killing people all the time on that road. Uh, the road would just collapse under their vehicle, and they would plummet hundreds and hundreds of feet and die. Um, the government of Myanmar worked against the people in every possible way, limiting every resource they possibly could. There is one water pipe that big coming into the village with fresh water. <laughs> it's amazing what they've been able to do. God is blessed in an amazing way, seeing hundreds and hundreds of people saved, seeing churches started and people trained in the scriptures. Another bright spot in the Chin Hills is Brother Timothy Mang. I don't know if any of you have ever met Timothy Mang. He's been to the States. His brother Paul Van Ray is a, is a powerful evangelist that God's using across the country. He goes into some of the most difficult places in Myanmar where Buddhism is entrenched and, and violent and goes and preaches there. But that Hakka church work has seen great revival in many churches planted, many people trained. All of the churches in the Chin Hills have started Bible colleges either in their area or down, down in Yangon where there are more people and it's easier, a little bit easier to hide or to blend in when there's opposition from the government. They have Bible colleges. They have Bible translation efforts. Myanmar is sounding out the word of the Lord in all of that southern part of Asia, Southeast Asia. Our own brethren across the street of the Gospel Baptist Church have 40 churches in Myanmar across the Chin Hills and 22 in North America. And what an exciting thing it is to see them go out and witness and be soul winners and be church planners to their people and to others here in this country. The word of the Lord is sounding out from these believers so that we need not to speak anything. This book goes on towards the end and said, Baptist Churches of Burma must not forget their major responsibility to witness for Christ to those around them. A church so engrossed with its own problems that it neglects this primary purpose of its existence is on the way to spiritual death. 
The words of Christ in Matthew 16, 25 are as true for a church as for an individual. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. The spiritual revitalization of a church and its members should make all more active in evangelizing the community. Christian responsibility and Christian concern are not limited by national boundaries. Christ's command to witness for him even to the uttermost part of the earth applied to Burma Baptists just as to other Christians. The chronicle of Baptist work in Burma records a good beginning, but only a beginning of the development and growth of the Church of Christ in this land. And I think we should be saying the same thing about what God's done here. These first many decades of Colonial Hills Baptist Church is a good beginning, but it's only a beginning. There's much more to do. There's further to go. There's more people to reach, more churches to start, more gospel to send out. What can we learn from the churches in Thessalonica and, and in Myanmar? Well, first, I want us to see from both of these churches that sounding forth God's word is not dependent on background or resources. We could say of both the church in the Chin Hills and of the church in Thessalonica that they turn to God from idols, literally from idols. It is amazing to hear when we have baptisms here of the people that come from the Burmese church across the street to use our baptismal waters. Uh, don't you love those testimonies? I know sometimes they're difficult to understand. Um, we do our best to explain them. But to hear people say, I was an animist. I was a Buddhist. I was serving this idol. I was worshiping a false god. And he has saved me. Sounding forth God's word is not dependent upon a background. Once you're saved, he's transforming you into the image of his dear son. And you're a witness. We have a great heritage here. In the United States, we have a great heritage here in Indiana, and particularly here at Colonial Hills Baptist Church, to whom much is given, much is required. And the work of doing this gospel spreading, of doing this church-wide outreach, isn't only to those who have all of this, but surely those who do must use it well. It's not dependent upon resources. The early church in Thessalonica had great adversity and difficulty but they used what they had. When I lived in Jordan, one of the refrains of the evangelicals was how hard it is to be a Christian in the Middle East. And I would often hear my Arab brethren, um, who had endured a lot, to be fair. They, they could be imprisoned at any time. The pastor that I worked with was taken by the secret police at least twice, might have been three times. Another brother was taken, kicked out of the country, we had to go back to Egypt. A lot of adversity there. There's difficulty. There is legitimate difficulty. And when that happens, uh, sometimes we get a defeated spirit. And I would hear some of the brethren say, you know, we just can't do much. We just don't have any opening. There's no opportunities to do a lot for the Lord. And it struck me, and I, and I told the brethren there, if we stop complaining about how little freedom we have and use what we have, we will change this land forever. Those of you who are my age and older can remember better times. And maybe some of you who are younger can remember better times. It's getting bad fast, it seems. And we can lament that. And surely there are wicked things we should decry and say no to and fight against. But if we just use what we have, we will change this land forever. 
The promises of the word of God are always true. His grace is always here. Look at what God's done in the Chin Hills. These poor, illiterate, impoverished people going all over the world to our own doorstep preaching the gospel. Praise his name. He finds a way to get resources to people. He finds a way to get background of, of, of teaching and understanding to people. But nothing can replace that faith in which we're confident that God can use us. We can also learn the testimony of a church can be like a laser beam piercing through darkness. The church in Thessalonica was a, a lighthouse, a very bright one. The church in the Chin Hills is a very bright lighthouse in a dark place. As we see the world getting darker, we get to be, see the truth of the gospel shining brighter in it. We don't need to see or think of a diminution. We should think of an increase and of a continuance that God's giving us grace to do that work. And finally, I want us to see that we have all of the example that we need. We have all of the, of the encouragement we would need to sound out the word of the Lord, to fill up our land with our testimony of saving grace. Sometimes we look at these other churches and we think of them as different or distant. We think of what's happening in Thessalonica so long ago it can't possibly uh, you know, relate to us. Or we think of something happening in, in Myanmar and say, oh, it's so different. It's so distant. But those believers' testimony were given to us by God on purpose. Not so that they would seem distant to us, but so that they would spur us on and encourage us and show us what he can do. We need to have a faith response to these things. When you hear about what God did in the Moravian church in missions or in the life of incredible soul winners like Philip the Evangelist and Walter Wilson and many others, or in these churches like in Thessalonica and in Myanmar, your, your heart response needs to be, Lord, let me see you do this in me. We don't have to run to the edge. We want to have a resonance with what's happening there. We want to see it that is resonating with us. And what's very interesting is when that happens and we're resonating with the heart of Christ right where we are, many times we'll find that we're on the edge and didn't even know it. <laughs> that God's using us to lead the way for somebody else. Though we didn't plan it, though we didn't think about it, we simply were doing what our master told us to do until he came back. And then all of a sudden, he's using us in a profound way like he did these churches. Be people. Be a church that expects the Lord to work, that's ready for his return. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.